0: Welcome to the Mentality Podcast, I hope everyone is well. Today we have got Andy Grant on the podcast and he's a man whose life has taken some twists and taken some turns and I feel has coped with some of the biggest amounts of adversity, but he's now a motivational speaker and a world record holder. Andy's an ex-Royal Marine and he joined shortly after losing his mother at just 12 years old talk about the physical tests and trials that he took part in down in Limston and some of which I have actually had a little taste of after a trip down there with England under 16s. Andy served in Iraq and Afghanistan and one day Andy was out on patrol with one of his best mates and the bomb which went off seriously injured Andy's leg seemed to be foreshadowed the night before as his pal Ryan had told him that he had dreamt that one of them had been blown up. Andy is now a single leg amputee, but he's expressed that he has got a handle now on life that he never had as a Marine or as someone who feels they've lost their identity after leaving the Marines. Andy made the decision to amputate his leg and live a more fulfilled life. And this podcast is sponsored by our new partner, Better You, an award-winning natural health brand. Better You specialises in the pill-free supplementation of nutrients that have been underrepresented or simply omitted due to our modern diets and lifestyles including transdermal magnesium and oral vitamin sprays. I recently did a podcast with the director Andrew Thomas who after his dabbling with magnesium this is important for people who suffer with asthma it allowed him to drop an inhaler which had been his crutch his whole life after this dabbling with magnesium and magnesium can also help with migraines and the relaxing of muscles. And a big one, something that underpins everything that we do, sleep. These things are important for me, especially in my life right now. I also use a range of their supplements in the form of oral sprays, which are much easier than tablets. I use C B D, vitamin K, vitamin D, vitamin B, and turmeric, and also a big one, important for you vegans listening, B12, vitamin B12, all good for my brain health also keeping me ticking over as an athlete. To get your hands on some of their awesome products, head over to betteryou.com and check them out. It's now time to jump into the pod, enjoy. Mate I'm buzzing to do this, buzzing to get into it um, and chat to you and you know, from when we last talked, I've had a look at your story and seen some of the stuff that you've you've been through and, and what you've done since. Uh, I think it'd be class. It'd be great, mate, if we could just start. I know there's one of your big challenges or probably, as you've said, the biggest challenge that you've had as a young lad um, growing up. But could you paint a picture for us, for you being a young Andy Grant knocking about Liverpool being a proper scouser?
1: Yeah, just a um, normal lad really, mate. I was um I was kind of just just loved being a, like a lad's lad, it was always in playing sport and loved, loved school, loved just being my mates all the time. I was I wasn't um I wasn't the cleverest in the class, but I wasn't um I wasn't stupid either. I was quite I'd say just average throughout. Um I think if you probably looked at any school report it'd probably say um you know, likes to talk a bit too much and distract other people but Part of that, I'm mean, I a bad kid, and um, yeah, just I loved going to school, loved being an army mates all the time, and I'm massively into sports. Uh, and I always talk about just the growing up. The hardest challenge for me was going from being a normal lad to then uh, my mum passed away. She was diagnosed with leukemia um, when I was 12, um, and that for me, kind of me life then didn't go according to plan. The kind of plan that I thought, obviously, it just um, it just changed massively overnight, going from not having a care in the world to. You know, playing football and, and chatting to girls. So then, suddenly I spent my six weeks holidays visiting my mum every day in hospital before she passed away. So, um, child up to a certain point was great, and then obviously when that happened, um, it, it was just, it was tough for a couple of years.
0: So, what was the plan going to be? Did you, did you have like a like you say a set, a set plan before that happened? And and were you because I know you played football a bit when you were
1: younger? And yeah, I am. Um, I mean, I loved playing football. I had at Liverpool when I was a kid, um, but I mean I don't think I was ever good enough to, to make it full time. And I think like I said before, my mum passed away. I was um I was twelve when she passed away, so I didn't really have any idea of what I wanted to do when I was older. And then when she did pass away, my focus then just changed to just wanting to try and do her proud. You know, I'm not I'm not massively religious, but I felt that she was, you know, would be obviously looking down on me and I just wanted to to do her proud and and that was then the focus, then just to try and to try and make something myself. But with regards to university or a job, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was a kid. To be honest, yeah. Um, I mean that, that
0: must have been a tough time for you at twelve years old. Um, and uh, were there some stuff that you learn about about life, learn about yourself then that, that sort of you never would have imagined to learn at that that point at that age?
1: Yeah. Um, I life can be life can be shit <laughs> life can be tough you know um think when you're a kid you just and I was a real mummy's boy like a real real mummy's boy and was telling me Mom, I loved her every two minutes and then all of a sudden she'd gone it was um really tough for me to take and yeah I guess at an early age I just had to quick you know, I had two younger sisters who were three and five and uh, my dad's a kind of man's man you know he's a firefighter and um, so we had like a kind of a yeah, pretty hands-on job. And then suddenly again I went from having, you know, not a care in the world to then suddenly having to be in a one parent family and then try and actually be a grown up myself and help bring up my two little sisters. So I guess in life I learned that, yeah, things don't always go things don't always go to plan. You know, life can be tough, life can be challenging. Um, I guess I lost a bit of my childhood, to be honest, because again, I lost that carefree kind of young lad that I was and turned into a bit more responsibility than I probably wanted to have at that time.
0: What what was your relationship with your dad like at that time, and and has has that been something that's that's evolved over time? And and imagine like you know that was the first point of call really when when that happened. You know what was your relationship like with your dad?
1: Um, to be honest, I don't really remember a lot of my dad before um, before my mum passed away, just because. You know, he, he was working. He was the kind of he was the um, the breadwinner. It was my mum who whose job it was to look after us. And um, so when then suddenly she kind of passed away within a few months. She got sick in the May and then passed away in the September. You know, the whole dynamic of the family changed. My dad wasn't always the one initially to to kind of be there and you know give the kind of hugs and kisses out. It was always my mum. So I think that relationship just changed straight away, and, and that was tough because, like you say, my dad's a bit of a man's man and kind of quite old school. And then for him to suddenly have to bring up, you know, a twelve-year-old boy and uh, you know two daughters who were three and five at the time, I think it was a massive challenge for him, a massive stress for him as well. And I think um, mine and his relationship definitely got. I mean, we never argued a lot, kind of uh, as kids, or never clashed a lot. But I just think it's it's just getting better and better over time, especially. Uh, now we're both men um, and, and I look back at it and just think it was just such a such a challenge for him to go from almost having to change his personality, you No, know, not that he wasn't a good dad beforehand but then he, he suddenly had to change overnight to being both mum and dad and obviously that was a massive challenge for him and our relationship like I say wasn't bad but it's definitely improved as I've got older I could realise the kind of role that he had to kind of undertake.
0: Yeah. And, and obviously you've you've been introduced to the, the fact that life's tough there and, and, and some things have happened for you. Um, and that's at 12 years old, mate. Could could you talk a bit about like how you ended up turning your attention towards the Marines and, and, and how that happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had that kind of same mindset, mate, to try and just do something with my life. I wanted to try and make my mum proud and in any way possible. But I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do after leaving school. Yeah. Um, a lot of my friends were just going on to building sites and doing various bits and bobs and I'm like the least man's man ever I can't, I, I can't do anything around the house mate I'm awful and I didn't really, I didn't really have it in me to kind of go and do anything like that um, so I just, I just said you know carry on and go to sixth form and, and I just maybe you'll fall into university and you'll find something you're passionate about and a year into sixth form I felt the jump from kind of school to, to A levels was just a bit too much for me I struggled quite a lot in it. And I spent more time just bunking off lessons and sitting in the common room talking to girls than I did actually going to my lessons. It was just clear that I wasn't I wasn't taking it serious enough. And then around about that same time, I saw an advert for the Marines and it said uh, 99.99% need not apply. And again, I always had that competitive drive in me to always want to you know push myself. And I just thought, you know, I can be the 0.01%. And and that was it then. But I always say like... I, you can call it stupid or naivety I don't know what it was maybe a bit of both but I didn't actually think about going to war or you know being in the military it was just being around the lads and being around that family and, and having that kind of brotherhood that's what I yeah yeah that's what I kind of really aspire to to see if I I could undertake the challenge and, and see if I had what it takes to be to be in that big boys group, you know become a role in commando and, and just be a part of that so um as soon as I can't have learned about the Marines and, and seeing the camaraderie and what it was like, and that was it. Then I just had tunnel vision, and that was then the goal.
0: It's a big thing, in it, to go and just be that, like, 0.1%. What, what was the advert? What was it that, that caught, you, caught your mind in that?
1: It was it's on YouTube. You can, It was this kid running through, like, a forest, and he, he crawls through a tunnel, and he's underwater in this tunnel, and his, his trousers get caught on a bit of rock, and he can't breathe, and the advert says, you know, would you quit here? And then he's struggling a bit more, and it says here. And he's struggling a bit more, and then just as he's about to, um, he's about to pass out. He one of the Marines lift him up, and he uh-huh. has a big breath, uh, and he carries on going. And it says like it's just about the various parts where you'd quit, and if you have what it takes to kind of do it. And I just thought, ah, you know, I want to, I want to test myself. I want to see if I can, if
0: I can do that. It's a, w- it's a weird thing that, I it like, you know, you're explaining that the picture of that advert. Why is it that some people find that attractive? Do you know what I mean? It's
1: it's yeah. strange, isn't it? And it's really interesting because I uh, I spoke I went to a Royal in dinner not long back and I, uh, I I was we were having a similar conversation about that advert mm. and they actually changed the advert because or they changed the recruitment kind of stance because not not as many people were kind of taking up that challenge and like you say it's it's some people it's it's that a challenge and other people it might it might put people off so. It is so interesting to find um, what type of people are more likely to go for that kind of recruitment target. But you sort of, I know, I know, like, you like you go through the phase, and
0: it's like, um, you know, people get cut or people quit and stuff. That's almost the first barrier in it, or the first sort of thing yeah. to to put in front. So it's like you might get less people, but you probably get the the right number of people that are prepared to you, do it. One
1: hundred percent anyone who's been through it would vouch for it and say that's the right way to do it because you don't want to, the other type of people who wouldn't even go for it you know you want the type of people who think alright it looks tough but I think I've got what it takes
0: yeah it's funny mate you mentioned that because I've um, with England youth I, I think it must have been 15s or 16s we went down to Limpston and we did um, we did about a week and we did about a week like doing a, a marines training and stuff we did loads of stalking we did um the endurance test, the physical endurance test, like carrying the stretches and that. And we also did um going through the sheep dip. Is it called a sheep dip? Yeah, and the sheep
1: the, dip. yeah. Well,
0: and it was based on yeah oh is it yeah so uh, and that tunnel is that I remember I can remember it vividly like obviously we were going through as a team and I think we were split into different teams but I remember going through um this long tunnel, which I think it might have been the other side of the sheep dip or or a separate one. Um, it were like three quarters full of water and you can only just put your head out just out on yeah. top of water mate and um, and there's people in front of you and people behind you yeah,
1: and you're yeah. like
0: mate if if someone freaks out there and if someone yeah. do you know what I mean it's like
1: <laughs> you're not you're not thinking about all else are you um, yeah. well that's it yeah isn't it is the Jordan's course is probably my favourite commando test which you've done it's two 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 and a half miles I think of tunnels and obstacles yeah. and then a four mile run back to camp and it's got to be done carrying 21 pounds of kit and your rifle that's got to be done in under 72 minutes yeah. but like you say there's about I think two or three hundred metres of tunnels and like you say some of them are you can't crawl through the tunnel with your head like that because you can't breathe so it's it's a, it's a good test <laughs>
0: good times eh? good times it's um, yeah. my best
1: to be honest mate in training I think because you know there's just all you in it together you're basically still civilians and you get thrown into that military world and no one's got a clue what's going on you're just kind of all together and thrown into it it's some amazing laughs that you
0: have I think as a young lad obviously playing rugby and stuff you can be hard and you can be in tough games and stuff but that was the first sort of 15 16 16 first sort of time you go go into something like that and you think right what's going on here like there's there's like people screaming people shouting you, you, you're you, like you're running it like, not matter if you're injured or it not matter if you're like you've flipping got blisters or what like you, you're going through it and you, mm-hmm. there's no way of stopping it and there's no way that you're going to quit and you're sort of like just on that conveyor belt of just going through the, the challenges and different challenges and yeah, it's a strange sort of weird feeling, but it's 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 enjoyable when you're doing it, and especially enjoyable after you've finished and you can you know you've done it and you've done the hard work. Um. Yeah, I remember that, and I remember thinking around the time. Well, I'm not going to do anything as hard as this for the next, you know, few weeks. It's not. It's just. It's just not going to compare. So you're all right doing the the games. You're all right doing the training because it's it's not going to be that hard. So it gives you that bit of. Um, I guess that that experience to put in your, as David Goggins would say, your cookie jar and, and to sort of know that you've done it, being there and done it. Um, so yeah, that were, that was a big part, big part of my life, mate. Going down to Limpsden and something I remember quite, quite uh, vividly,
1: mate. Um, I think as well, like a lot of a lot of professional sports team. I think the Rugby Union lads in 2003, I think went down there, um, World Cup, and you know, the football lads that just went down. Then I got to work a lot with them and just before. Open. I wasn't into rugby at all Growing up It was always football Being in Liverpool And it's only since I joined the Marines And you see the comparison With, with rugby and, and the military Especially the Marines There's just so much Such a connection Between the rugby lads And military And um, you can see why It's a good idea To maybe go down to Limston As a rugby lot Before I'm Torn on and off For any training Just to get that kind of That team bonding Going again Yeah definitely mate It's like
0: It's like when You know when bullets are flying on the field or whatever, like it's, it's, um, and it gets tough. You can think back to those times and, and you sort of got it in you deep down and you're, you're like, you, you're all right here. We're all right and you can cope with it and you won't break under it. So it's a big, mate, a big experience that was. Um, and I, w- I will think as well, like when I, I listened to you some other stuff, and you were talking about, um, you know, some of the stuff that they do to, that were a bit different to the physical tests, but there were ones which would be sort of be like, almost seem pointless, almost seem annoying, almost Mm -hmm. seem really sort of like dramatic and and like, yeah, looking for a better word than pointless, but like something which would be just repetitive and just to make you, make you break, I guess, or look for people to break and quit. Um, could you explain some of those those sort of things that you'd have to go through as a Marine and, and what you'd have to put up with?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people think it's a lot of screaming and shouting in the Marines and I can only speak to the Marines and not the army or anything like that. But in the Marines it's don't get me wrong, there are times where they do scream and shout and it is it is very, very tough physically. But a lot of the times is it's just the kind of the bullshit of it type thing. You know, they're just doing things just to make you think this is pointless, I'm not doing this no more. Whether it's, you know, polishing your boots or whether it's um, you folding up all your uniform and it's called the Globe and Laurel. So there's basically a, a monthly magazine that you get in the Marines called the Globe and Laurel, which is an A four magazine. And everything in your wardrobe has got to be Globe and Laurel, so exactly the same size as an A four. And you'll have locker inspections and you know, your locker could be gleaming. You could have spent all night tidying it, cleaning it. Everything is immaculate. And if one T shirt or one pair of shorts isn't folded to this A4 piece of paper, you know, your locker will get trashed. And they're saying like and again it's not screaming and shouting. It's kind of, you know, they'll they'll pick it up and they go, What the fuck's that? Right? And then they'll throw it back in and say, like, you know, you're on the flank and you'll get extra punishments or something. And it's those little things and you think, I've not had no sleep, I'm tired from all the effort we've done yesterday. I've got another day full of going to the gym today. I've got to take on all this new information of map and and weapon systems. and um, Now, it was all for nothing because I didn't fold it within an inch of what I should have. Or they'll, you'll have a bottle of water and you pour a bottle of water over your head and then you'll have two minutes to go in and get changed and come back out again. Mm. And if you're not out in time, you're doing press-ups and all those little things. It just makes you prove how much you want it. And it, and it, it separates those who, who think they want it and those who actually really do. Um, there'll be guys there who will probably... Maybe, I think it was quite easy for me. I was 17 and I just, that's all I knew. Where I mean, there were some guys who were maybe in like the early 20s who got maybe mortgages to pay off a missus back home. And they're probably sitting there thinking, I've got a missus back home. And yeah, I'm getting called to fucking do press ups because I didn't fold and a t shirt in what I should have. And they just think, you know what, I'm, I'm quitting. This isn't for me. And it's those things where it makes you so much more resilient and it's, it makes you such, such a stronger person as stupid as they are, little examples, you know, does really test you, test your character, test your mentality.
0: Can, can you think of like, any of the relationships that you had with the blokes that end up quitting or end up leaving? Like, have you got relationships with them now or or not? And I've, you know, what was it like when, you know, someone had just got right, I've had enough, I'm quitting, I'm going home and that. Is it, you know, can you think of any of the experiences like that?
1: Yeah, I can't say no, any of them now still, but, um, I remember at the time someone had like did end up I think the worst one would if you if you had a missus and you'd leave because of your missus and then just be like do not leave because of your missus like come on it's you know your missus might not be there forever you've, you've got a career now your next 30 years you know and there was loads of lads who left because of that and then would end up joining again and you just try and you try and talk them around and stuff but I think one big big thing I um, I learned through all marine training when we passed out and we got to week 32 and we all passed out one of my corporals and um, it was Corporal Dave Elliott his name was a Geordie and he turned around and he said lads he said the love you have right now and the passion and, and the desire that you have now he said never let that go because once it goes he said it's very hard to get back and I think it's so true you know once you saw it in someone's eyes that they didn't want to be there no more it was hard to try and bring them back mm. You know, when you turned up week one, day one and you had all that desire and passion to want to be a Marine, the second you start to lose that, it's very hard to then convince you, get, get have other people try and convince you that, you know, come on, this is this is great, you know. And so I think once you are seen someone quit, it was very hard to try and get them going again. I think that's like a lot of things in life, you know, as soon as you start telling yourself, Oh, this is starting to hurt a bit or it's a bit tough this or I don't really know if I want to do this no more, once those chinks start to appear. it's it's very difficult to get back on track again and Mm. um, once people left you know they got an ex kind of next to the name and then you kind of never saw them again
0: what what did it you know can you remember like the mindset that you'd get into like amongst all this stuff where you're being made to be that tired you're being made to um, sort of they're sort of breaking you down and stuff. Can you remember like the, 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 the level that you got to, like, you know, I relate to it in, in, in games or whatever, where you're that tired that you sort of just get to a level which you just, you're just just on, on that on that plane and you're just sort of cracking on, you're just getting on with stuff, you're just plugging away. And it's like the more adversity or the, any any more twists and turns that happen, it doesn't really matter because you're already down there, you're already in that sort of mode. Can can you think of that? Can you think of any um, times of of where it felt like that for you? And do you think that's what you managed to do rather than the the other
1: blokes that left? Yeah, I think so. I think the two big things is I think number one or three, I should say number one. I um, like I say losing my mum at twelve was was the worst pain I've ever been through. So I kind of thought it's not going to be as bad as that. You know, it's going to be tough, but it's not going to be as bad as when I lost my mum. So that was one, that gave me confidence to think I could keep on pushing on. Second was pride. You know, I didn't want to go back to Liverpool and tell my dad that I wasn't a Marine. You know, he was already kind of telling everyone, oh, my son's doing this. And it was that pride of wanting to, you know, make him proud of me and really push myself. And the third thing, which I think probably separated people, and I've always felt this, but I've never described it in this way. I listened to a podcast um, of Foxy off SAS Who Days Wins. He's a mate of mine, Uh, he was in the Marines as well. And he spoke about when he was on SIS selection, And although I didn't go special forces, it's very similar. And it might sound a bit selfish, but what I used to do is if you did see someone quit, you'd kind of take their power, if you like, what they had, you know what I mean? And so it'd give you confidence. So if you were kind of getting beasted and you saw someone moaning and someone quitting, you'd kind of, you'd think, well, I'm still here. So you'd kind of get what remaining power they had and it'd make you a bit stronger. And obviously, you don't want to see anyone quit. But when you did see people giving up, I think, well, I'm still here, and then that gave me more confidence. And I think it just—I think some people kind of just really wanted it, and I think that's all it comes down to. It's just your desire. Who wants it the most? Who's prepared to put in, you know, the most, the most work? And and like I say, that's thankfully I managed to stick at it till the end.
0: Yeah, it's. um yeah, I guess you just give yourself that boost or that reward, don't you? Internally, to just say, "Look, I'm still going here. I've still got a bit in me. I'm, I'm going to keep going." Um, and you mentioned there a bit earlier about like sort of getting into it and not, not sort of, um, thinking about going to war or thinking of going to battle and stuff. Can you tell us a bit a bit about Iraq and, and Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, so um, just just when I happened to pass out of uh, marine in saying there was a lot going on the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was going on I turned up to kind of my my workplace which was 4-5 commando based up in Scotland and you just volunteered every morning you come down to work you'd ask for volunteers you'd volunteer and you'd either got sent on a, on a driver's course over in, in Lechensfield near Hull or you got sent to Iraq or you got sent to Afghanistan and you'd turn up every morning and you'd volunteer and you'd either get sent to either Hull Iraq or Afghanistan it was you know, similar um, type of places <laughs> yeah. It was just mad. It's probably more dangerous in Hull, to be fair. Been on a <laughs> nice. Um, and I went to, I ended up going to Iraq first. I got I got picked to go to Iraq, and it was it was a really challenging time for me, to be fair. In Iraq, it was um, we were doing a lot of hearts and minds. It was our job to be basically coach, mentor, and um, train the Iraqi Marines and the Iraqi Navy, in the hope that when we left, Iraq would be in a better place. And my time there was pretty chilled out. I was never in any, any real danger, nothing like that. I never had to fire my weapon once. And it was a good kind of first tour for me because I got to uh, like learn my job a little bit more about the Marines and, and learn what it was like to kind of do it for real. So it was a good kind of dip my toe in the water, come back home, spent about a year in the UK, and then it was time to go to Afghanistan. And just straight away, made there was just no comparisons whatsoever with, with Iraq and Afghanistan from... Oh. The living conditions to the landscape to the, the locals to the enemy you know everything was completely different and although we didn't know it at the time in 2009 when we were deployed there that was actually the most um, dangerous time uh, for British soldiers 108 soldiers were killed just in one year with and they say seven or eight are seriously injured for everyone that's killed so it was you know eight nearly 900 soldiers seriously injured just in one year alone and it happened to me when we were out there, so like we knew it was bad at the time. But it's only when you look back, you realise like fucking hell, you know, it was, it was pretty tasty out there when we were there, and it was um, it was just mad. It was just it was just it was like it was like being in the wild west. It was lawless. It was it was just crazy, nothing like I'd ever experienced before.
0: What was it like? Do you know when you'd get home and you'd sort of or well, you'd get back to base? What was it like, sort of trying to rest and and get? get back to into rest mode. Did you ever, ever feel like you rested properly or did you feel like you was always on and always ready for, for action?
1: Um, a bit of both really it was you kind of always had this like readiness of, of being alert, but I think a lot of the time though you were just so tired as well. You know, you just slept because you was just you were just absolutely exhausted. And the other thing is I think there's a famous quote about it, I don't know who said it, but so like war is is hours and hours and hours of boredom, and then moments of like intense excitement, and it's a little bit like that. You know, it's it's not kind of twenty four seven. You know, you're getting shot on twenty four seven. Sometimes you might have, you know, a whole day or two where just nothing happens and you're just sitting there bored. You're playing cards with all the lads. You're watching DVDs. You're cleaning your weapon. You're getting your head down. It's so some of it is quite boring, and then you'll have then kind of minutes or hours of actual pure intense kind of firefighting going on. Or you're doing casualty evacuations, or you know, real kind of you're real in the thick of it. But I didn't, um, I didn't kind of struggle to, to switch off in that sense. And, and when I'm, when it comes to downtime,
0: mm. and uh, there's, I, I know from looking at some of your stuff, and, and and from listening to some of your stuff too, there's a there's a dream in there. There's a, a real a sort of dream that that plays into to lot like of the anecdote or for for another challenge that, that you faced out there. Can you tell us a bit about that dream and and, and what followed on from that too?
1: Is it my mate's dream? Is yeah. this what you mean? Yeah, that's yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, my mate, one of my best mates now. He um we we woke up for breakfast and we had to get, we got up about four o'clock in the morning, half three in the morning. Might have been all our kit was packed and we were ready to go out on a patrol. And um, I had kind of because we were based in Scotland, a lot of my mates are um, Scottish and my two best mates were both from Scotland ryan he, um ryan and ian they were both sitting at the table and ian was about to go and lead this patrol and i was the second man and ryan said um we're all just sitting there with our head torches on it's pitch black eating porridge about to go on this patrol and he just turned around and said, oh mate i've just had a nightmare that, uh, that you got blown up and ian was kind of like "Fucking cheers mate nice one and i just started laughing thinking you know it's you know we've been here like four or five months now it's 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 not going to happen. It's just a dream. And and that was it. I didn't think anything more of it. It was just that that was it. And then obviously a couple of hours later, um, a bomb went off and and we got blown up. And Ryan, you know, says that... uh, Because what was interesting to me, and obviously we'll come on to it in a minute, but I've got my version of what it was like to get blown up. One of the strangest things were when I finally met up with all the guys again. And I had their kind of recollections of what happened that morning because... So like I'm sure for you, if, if any kind of fan asks you, you know, what it was like to, to play in this particular game or if there's, there's a certain story you tell, you've maybe told a story to people or your friends and family hundreds of times. And because of my job now as a motivational speaker, I tell this story all of the time of me getting blown up. So then to, to then hear someone else say, this is what happened from my point of view, it was it was so bizarre. And, and hearing Ryan kind of relive that morning for him, he just said he, he heard the two bangs go off. And he just knew straight away because of this dream that it was me and, Ian. and he And um, he just started crying, you know, thinking um, or just, you know, visibly upset that he'd had this dream and unfortunately it had come true. Like he didn't even need to listen to the names to come over the radio. He just knew that it was, that was Ian who got blown up because of this dream. So so did he hear that from a distance then? Yeah, he was on a patrol, yeah. And he was on the same patrol and we were in different uh, locations. Like he was probably half a mile away. And he just said uh, these two bands go off and he just knew so because of the dream he went that, that'll be Ian and Andy.
0: Yeah mate that's crazy to think I mean we're never going to know where, where that dream comes into it and um, oh. if he's, if he's, if he's seen something there like but um, could you could you talk us through mate your, your version of events as well and, and, and you know how it happened from your point of view too?
1: Yeah on, on this morning it was um, the objective was to get into a on a patrol get out on patrol, get to a compound where we knew the Taliban would be and basically get there before first light so that when the sun came up, we'd all be in position to to basically give them a good fight. And I always remember thinking that we'd, uh, we'd profited. We, we were the lucky ones because we had one section who had to leave a little bit earlier than us and had to, say, patrol out two miles. And we had an extra couple of hours in our sleeping bags and we only had to patrol out, at, say, a mile. So we thought, oh, this is great, you know, extra couple of hours in bed. And as we were on this patrol, um, we were going over to see these of irrigation ditches. And we best mate, him leading the way, and not being the second man, you kind of want to be as close to him as you can, so you can be his eyes and ears, but then far enough away so that if anything goes bang, you kind of it's not killing two ears at the same time. So I'm, you know, navigating over these series of obstacles and compound walls, etc. And so we got to a point, and Ian turned to me and said, You know, we need to get over this ditch. I said, Mate, I'm right behind you, you know, you just let me know. And he walked a bit further and stopped. And the last thing I remember seeing was he kind of just looked at me and said, Right, we'll go here. And I steadied myself next to him and kind of went to go and jump over this ditch. And it doesn't, um, I obviously didn't do this at the time, but when I try and think back, I always remember just feeling really tense, like hearing two huge bangs. He's just kind of tensed up. And what had happened is he jumped over this ditch, and in between the two trees, he hit the tripwire. He's jumped, hit this tripwire, two bombs off in between us, blowing him forward and blowing me back. The blast actually kind of blew him away, 30, 40 metres. So he didn't end up as bad as me. I mean, he had a nasty bang to his head, broke his femur, broke his elbow... And I was chunks missing out on the left-hand side of them. But for me, the kind of strapple just hit me from all angles. I just fell back straight away. And I just started screaming as loud as I could. You know, I knew straight away I'd been blown up. And I knew it was pitch black, so I didn't know whether I'd fell into the ditch or whether I'd been blown hundreds of metres away. And I guess I was just screaming, you know, for the lads on the ground to know where I was so that they could hopefully save me. And... um yeah, in, in that one split second, I suffered twenty-seven separate injuries: and shrapnel to my face, broken elbow, broken sternum, severed my femoral artery, chunk out of my left leg, and broke broke both lower legs, severe damage to both hands and both feet, and I actually lost the ability to have kids as well. I got um, told I never be able to have kids, so it was um, it was a pretty bad day at the office, to be honest mate Yeah, fuck, it's a big thing, mate, to happen, and, and
0: you know. I can only imagine the relationships you've got around that have, have become stronger from it. What was it like in the aftermath of that? Like you know, with with the time for you to get recovered, and with the time for you to get to get to get picked up by a helicopter. Um, what were those moments like after that?
1: Yeah, I can't describe it in three phases. Like the first, maybe ten minutes, it was just. Was just I was just screaming as loud as I could, you know, I was just in I wasn't in any pain. But I just was in shock, I guess, and the guys for the first couple of minutes I was just screaming. The guys got to me as quickly as they could started calming me down and put a tourniquet on the top of my groin, which which ultimately saved my life. And and then for the next you know ten minutes the guys were just all around me, patching me up. And then after ten minutes, I just knew that you know, my right leg was was pretty badly damaged. The pain started to, to then hit me. The guys give me morphine, but I just knew something was wrong with my right leg. I kept on saying, "Lads, you know something's wrong with my right leg. I can feel it." And they're saying, "It's all right, mate. You know you still got it." I said, "Like don't don't lie to me, lads. How I still got my arms and legs?" And he was like, "Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, you still got them." Because even though I was awake and I could speak to everyone, my whole body felt paralysed. I couldn't I couldn't do anything. And I just knew there was, the pain in my right leg was so severe. I knew there was something really wrong with my right leg. And the guys were just doing everything to calm me down, really. And that that lasted about 10 or 15 minutes. The guys then got me on a stretcher, and they carried me about 200 metres to basically the middle of a field where a helicopter was going to come in and pick me up. And in the last 10 minutes, the kind of third part of it that I remember was was just feeling tired. You know, I obviously was was close to death at this point. I'd lost a lot of blood. And it's so funny, like, you know, you'd have to kind of the banter with the lads and stuff. We, we call it commando humour. That's why I relate it a lot to, like, the rugby field. no one, I've got a few rugby mates now, and it's very similar. And they're all kind of, you know, taking the piss and doing what they, they can and just trying to, have a, just trying to you know, keep you awake and keep you talking. And it did get to a point, though, and I remember it had been about 40 minutes or so, and they're trying to talk. Um, I'm just like, yeah, lads, yeah, okay, sound. And I kind of wasn't having the banter back with them. I was just kind of yeah, okay, yeah. And then I like, come on to keep talking. I was like, "What do you want me to talk about?" And I, I could just tell I was just getting like not not fed up with them, but it was just the life was just slowly draining out of me. And and then um, and then just as I was feeling really sleepy and I could feel myself just having no energy, the helicopter I could hear it in the background. So you have the chin up with the two rotor blades, and I could hear it coming in, and it landed next to me. And I just remember thinking, like that's it. I'm, I'm gonna survive because they basically say if you, if you, if you get on the helicopter, and you're still breathing. You know, the chances are you will survive. And I just remember being put on the helicopter and thinking, that's it. Like I'm, I'm gonna survive this. And then once I got put on the helicopter, they pump all the drugs and fluids into me, and then, and then I don't really remember anything from then on. Do you think like you were, um,
0: it, you know, when you were, when you were in that sort of state and waiting, um. Do you think you were like accepting of, of death at that point or like do you think you were st- still like
1: fighting? fighting to? Yeah, I think I was still not, not even so much fighting, I guess, well, maybe maybe subconsciously I was fighting, but I think I just had this this kind of confidence in the guys on the ground as well. I just I never, ever felt like I was going to die. That's one thing I always say. I never had one of these dramatic moments where I thought, I'm going to die now. It was um, the lads on the ground were doing an amazing job. I could see how hard they were fighting to carry the stretcher even though they were you know they were ball bagged they were having to pull me 200 metres and I just had so much confidence in, in their job and what they were doing That I didn't I wasn't didn't really accept defeat in that sense and whether that was because I was strong physically, strong mentally or, or what a bit of both but I had that confidence in the guys on the ground as well I knew that they'd get me out of there. What's, what's like your viewpoint on death now? I wouldn't say I'm scared of it I just I just don't want to die do you know yeah. what I mean it's not I'm, I'm not scared of dying I think um, I think with with everything that's happened to me when I look back at my life now with losing my mum and um, the friends I've lost in the marines myself getting blown up and the kind of adversities I've been through I just try and live life to the full now and it's again it's not that I'm scared of dying or anything like that it's just I feel like I've got so much of life that I want to live there's so much I want to do there's, I want to try and impact people's lives and so, I'm not You know, when it happens, it happens. But it's not something that I'm scared of or, or I think a lot about. What was
0: um, what was that after- aftermath of it all like, mate? You know, when you you got you got sort of fixed up, so to speak, and, and and off the back of all that, like,
1: what what did life look like for you after that? It was it was tough the first um, what the first few days when I woke up from my coma. It was. Um, <clears throat> I was still kind of all drugged up and stuff, and the severity of the situation didn't really hit me. But then, that I kind of say my motivational talks. That for me was one of the the hardest times of my life because in that in that moment I went from being this tough, Royal marine commando whose job as it was in Afghanistan to kind of get the bad guys. To there, in a split second, you know, my dad was now sh- my dad was now spoon feeding me, and I had three big realizations. You know, one. I lost this kind of adventurous active lifestyle that I loved. Like ever since I was a kid, I loved sport, I loved football, I loved travelling, I loved adventure. As I'm looking down at my body now, it was clear that all that had been taken away from me. Number two, I'd lost my job. You know, I again I'm a, I'm a realist and I knew that for me to stay in the Marines, it would take a miracle. You know, I knew I didn't have to I wouldn't be able to stay at that level anymore. So and so a job that I loved had suddenly been taken away from me. And then getting told that um, I can't have kids. That was, that was the worst thing in the world because ever since I was 12 and I lost my mum, I always had this vision of having you know, a huge family. You know, I'm really close already with my dad and my two little sisters. And I wanted to have you know, a huge family of my own. I wanted to hopefully have loads of nieces and nephews and I could just envision having a big house and I'm barbecue, you know, a huge house filled with love and happiness and laughter and, and getting told that you can't have kids. It was it was heartbreaking. It was it was awful. And so just that straight away waking up and, and having those three big realizations, it was very, very tough. The one thing that did help me though, or the, the few things that helped me, was I had my dad there. You know, my dad was a massive, massive um, support for me. I had other injured soldiers around me as well. And it was easy to kind of once you're around everyone, and you're all in a similar boat, it was easy to help pick each other up. And I guess the third thing which was a huge negative but acted as a positive was I had so many injuries going on but I didn't really have time to sit back and feel sorry for myself I had to kind of get myself better I had this big cage on my leg so I was trying to grow the leg back that I'd lost in the blast and rehabilitation just kicked on straight away so there was no real time to sit at home and feel sorry for myself I was kind of back into like get to rehab now you've got to learn to get walking again so don't get me wrong. Still, was tough, but I think having those three things my dad, the support network and marines and other injured soldiers, and um, and just a, I need to get better. That was that kind of helped me through. How have you um?
0: How have you looked to handle it, mate? Or what, what have you learned? Because you know, like from from the things you said in there earlier on as well about with your mum passing. Like you had expectations for, for what life was going to be and, and sort of a plan but that will completely sort of change from that point, And obviously this point is another massive twist, um, to what you, you envision your life to be and what your identity is and the expectations for how, how it is to go. Um, how have you sort of managed all that? And how have you sort of handled all that? Because, you know, there's some, some traumatic events in there and there's some sort of things that people, you know, it, they're completely unexpected in, in, in a way. Um, you know, what, what's your viewpoint on that? I mean, It's
1: been tough. Like, I, I take people to... Um, that was one of the best things, to be honest, about when I wrote a book, because it's easy for me to do these motivational talks and people can think, oh, wow, he's, he's breaking records, he's climbing mountains, he's this big success, and it, he's coping it really well. The fact of the matter is, you know, I didn't. I made loads of mistakes on the way and I was in some pretty dark places. Just because, like you say, yeah, you, you kind of summed it up perfectly. Like, the, the plans I had... All, all suddenly changed and it was like I'd, I'd try my best not to feel sorry for myself but when I look back at photos of me in Afghanistan I think like by the age of 21 I'd lost my mum lost my job I'd lost my leg and I'd lost um, the ability to have children and I think like you know at 21 you're just a kid you don't really know anything really about life and when I look back at the things I've had to deal with kind of do feel a little bit sorry for myself in that sense and I think that's what led me down the path of of um, when I found myself getting getting into problems it was more just that transition of things hadn't gone to plan so I needed to make a new plan and when I came out of the Marines that's probably when I when I had my darkest kind of period um, I had a girlfriend who um, she had two stepchildren and it moved her up to Liverpool and we had a relationship and it was just so much changed so quickly in my life you know i went from being this carefree marine to to now i've got a girlfriend and, and two kids and a mortgage and welcome back now just things happened just so quick and that kind of sent me down on a on a, again i don't know whether it was depression because i never ever went to see a doctor stupidly but um i think if i'd went and see him on now he probably would have said it was and it just come from that transition to going from in the marines not care in the world to all this responsibility and now we didn't have a leg and I started drinking too much, I was gambling too much and I guess with the the military as well, I was kind of all or nothing. You know, I wanted to be a Marine because it was the the, the elite. So kind of when I was drinking, I was going out and I was was staying out till all hours or when I was gambling, I was gambling more than I should have and and it would all come around at the same time of leaving the Marines and and losing my kind of, my identity, my purpose, my structure in my life and like you said, then all the goals I ever had suddenly it's just been ripped up in front of me so I didn't really have an answer for it for a long time it's only probably been the last probably five, five four or five years really when um, when I've kind of got me got
0: me shit together a bit more to be honest and what were what were like the turning point there because I mean I'm, I can only imagine like you know I, like I, I'm really interested in, in seeing how how people can um, better their moment to moment life right so not just waiting on achievements or waiting on big goals to tick off or waiting on big things which which they're always striving and straining for I think it's important that the the, the life can sort of improve from moment to moment and just sort of on their baseline level do you know like their normal sort of everyday life is is, is pretty important to get right and, and it seems to me like that you've made a bit of a transition from being that sort of all and nothing that's still part of you that's still who you are but you know, you've sort of had these goals, these aspirations and, and sort of they've been taken away from you. Um, you've gone through a period there with with depression and stuff, but now you're sort of living a life which I imagine is sort of more balanced and, and more sort of um, firing in a way, which, which it doesn't have to be the extremes. Um, and w- what plays into that? Is it, is it gratitude? Is it... Um, being able to be happy with the simpler things and and, and being steadier and, and having a steadier mindset in that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's brilliant that you've touched on that because it's something I try, I try to talk about all the time as well. Say to people that like, you don't have to go and climb Mount Everest to kind of have big goals and be happy in life, and that that was hundred percent my um, my issue. And my dad used to say to me all the time, I I kind of wouldn't be happy unless I was had a big plan to kind of do something crazy or you know. My dad would say, look, you, you can't be happy just being normal. And I, for a long time, I just didn't want to accept that. And big part of that was my ego. And I think, you know, an ego ego can get you killed. It's, it's it's not good to have an ego at all. And I think that was my problem. I went from being this Royal Marine Commando to thinking I was going achieve anything. So then I couldn't. And the thing I've learned, and I think maybe it comes with age or not, but, or maybe what I've been through, is that I do just that. What you said, that I take so much joy out of the simpler things in life now. And I think the things that might seem completely boring to people probably gives me the most satisfaction now. Um, I walk on my dog. You know, I, d- I got a dog because that, that helped me with my kind of getting a bit of structure in my life and helped me with the depression. When I had no purpose, I got a dog. And suddenly walking that dog in the morning became like one of the greatest joys of my day. You know, it went from kind of planning to climb Mount Everest, if you like, to then just walking the dog gave me just as much joy. And as I've got older now, um, and I've kind of I've, I've done so many different different types of things with my life. Again, the things now that bring me most joy are the little things like walking the dog. I've, I've been lucky enough now I went through uh, IVF and I've now got a little girl who's five. And just spending time with her now, you know, playing on the trampoline in the garden or walking the dog. Like the joy that that brings me is just tenfold. And I say to people all the time that, you know, you don't need to get blown up in Afghanistan to realise life can be tough. You know, Life is unfair, life is challenging in every walk of life. But, you know, how we react to things, that's that's what it's all about. And I've just tried to react now in a positive way where, again, I can take joy and out of the little things. And I'm, I'm very grateful for, for me little girl. You know, I didn't ever think I could have kids. So anytime I'm spending my hair I'm walking a dog, again, I didn't think I'd be able to walk properly. So I think the problems that were the worst things in the world, those huge negatives have now turned into positives because it's enabled me to, to take satisfaction out of those little things. Do you reckon that's amongst, or the turning
0: point's amongst that time getting the dog? Because, you know, you, you sort of talked about like the, the Marine Commando ego, like identity, and, and sort of losing grip on that. I imagine that was a pretty tough place to be, and obviously with, with the drinking and the gambling and stuff. Did you can you realise or can you sort of remember a point where there were a turning point for you coming out of that? It's
1: probably around about the time um, my daughter was born really. Um, I don't there was probably loads of points to be honest where where things went wrong. One of them I remember was um, I was out on a Sunday I think I was watching the football and I I drank too much and I think I'd been away for a couple of weeks and obviously my priority should have been to go home and See the, see the misses and stuff, and it wasn't. It was just kind of straight the pub. Uh, All the lads, I think there was like a Liverpool playing at four o'clock on a Sunday, so it was like straight the pub. And she said, "Kinda of, do a roast dinner. Make sure you come in at six o'clock, for example, for the roast." And I didn't go in for the roast and ended up getting in about 11, 12 and the roast dinner was uh, was on the step. And I remember just waking up the next morning and hungover. I'd gambled loads of money when I was drunk that I didn't even realise woke up, my bank balance, had took a hit, I'm feeling awful, this isn't speaking to me, Um, again it's Monday morning, where most people are, are getting up, and going to a job, that they hopefully enjoy, or they've got that structure to their life, and for the rest of my week, I had nothing on, I had nothing to do, and just lying there, feeling worthless, feeling shit, that had upset the people around me, and I just had nothing to look forward to, and, and that was the point, it was like, you know, what What am I doing with my life? I'm just going nowhere fast. And it was, at, um, it was a really dark place, to be honest, because you've kind of got to do it yourself. There's no one who can... People can advise you and people can help you out, but it's, it's, got, to, it's got to come from within. You know, you're the one who's going to have to make that change. And I think that was probably one of the lowest moments. Um, and then, like I say, hopefully... I'll probably still dip down again, but I think that was one big, big one I remember and then without doubt it was, it was having me a little girl that, that's given me the kind of strength and uh, put me back on the street and narrow
0: yeah mate it's big that and and can you think of the, the stepping stones into which like you've got your life like say back on track like you know because you, you went to or made the decision yourself Um, and I mean this is only decision that you can make uh, to actually amputate your leg Um, is this after the point of of or is this before the point when, when, when your daughter was born and stuff? Is this bit—is this where, where you thought like you want to make a serious change and you want to be able to make a new version of yourself, if you like?
1: Yeah, no, I had the leg, the leg amputated um, like two years after I got blown up and I was still going through those problems and challenges. It wasn't so much because of the leg. I think it was more down to, I mean, that didn't help because I had a few problems with the leg early on. Mm. So it was a bit of the, the physical challenge that being an amputee initially was causing me. But without doubt, though, the biggest one was the transition to go from the Marines to, to civilian life. That was the one that caused me the most the most trouble. Um, and it was just out of them not having that purpose. Do you know what I mean? I never had nothing really to get up for in the morning. It was it was a weird one because I think money is a bit of a taboo subject. No one really likes talking about money. and I got pensioned off from the Marines and it was no great deal. It's not a lot of money, but it was enough that I didn't have to get up and I go and work at 9 or 5 a job. So it was it was this weird kind of situation where it didn't really matter if I got up or not and done anything because nothing not actually changed in my life. So then getting the dog, that's what kind of gave me some structure. And then years later when I was lucky enough to go through um, to IVF and it thankfully worked, that then straight away was a game changer because, you know, a like a dog, obviously a lot more important, but you know, she's then you know everything then you know main responsibility you want to be a good role model you want to make sure she's safe and secure and you're not you're not acting like an idiot so without doubt that kind of put me back on the straight and narrow and the big thing I've learned to to it now is you know I still like having a drink I still like having a gamble I still like to kind of do the odd challenge and things like that but without doubt the biggest thing for me is just everything in moderation you know you gone away from kind of being that all or nothing person you know you are allowed to have a a glass of wine you know with your dinner or go for a couple of beers with the lads you know and not every time you need to be out till four in the morning you know you can throw a a, 20 pound footy coupon if you can afford it you don't have to be betting thousands every week you know and it's 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 those kind of things I've learned to be happy for me is just to get that moderation you know, again, you don't need to go and climb Mount Everest. You can just go and run a 10-miler if you want, or a 3-miler. And I think as I've got older and I've, I've had those highs and lows, without doubt, that, that's, that's what I've learned, really, that you can be happy by just just being a kind of normal guy who likes to go and run his 3-miles, 2-3 times a week and go to the gym and walk his dog and have his daughter and do the school run. You know, that is completely fine. Mm. Yeah, man,
0: it's, it's um, sort of a big real- realisation, isn't it? Um... To be able to do it, do the stuff in moderation. And could you tell us a bit about the step that you took to to actually say, right, you know, this isn't working for me. I'm, I want to to get my leg amputated. And could you tell us in specific, mate, about the pint that you had with your dad? I think it's the night before. How did that go, and and what was the conversation like there?
1: The big thing about having the leg amputated was um, it was a really tough thing for me because ever since my mum died, my dad was. Was, he's still my best mate now but he was always the one I spoke to got advice from and he didn't want me to have the leg amputated because for him I'm his only boy I'm his firstborn, born and he just he'd never known an amputee so he was kind of thinking it can't be good to you being an amputee it's like I know you can't run and you can't do what you want to do but at least you've still got your leg you know just be happy with it just be grateful you're still alive but I was spending a lot of time in the rehabilitation centre with a lot of injured soldiers and they had no legs or they were triple amputees and they were running, they were surfing, they were skydiving, they were learning to ski. They were living this really fulfilled life and yet there I was with this dodgy leg that didn't really work and I was just becoming really unhappy that I, I couldn't kind of live the life I wanted to live. I always say like a big fear of mine is unfulfilled potential. You know, knowing that you, you've got all this potential inside but you can't do anything. And I just got really, really frustrated and that I couldn't kind of get on with my life. And my dad at the time, he he was just being devil's advocate. He was kind of saying, well, well, what if it doesn't go right and this happened and stuff? And we had a few, um, I wouldn't say they were arguments, but like kind of family, heated family discussions, let's say, and he was kind of trying to convince me not to have it amputated. And then when we had it amputated, it was such a weird feeling because, again, no one told me I needed to have it done. It was all down to me. So when we travelled down to the hospital the night before, we stayed in a hotel and, and we went for some food in the restaurants and then as I'm standing at the bar, again, it was just a weird feeling knowing that I'm, I'm having this beer with my dad and yet, yeah, in the morning, I was having my leg chopped off. You know, and as, I, as I was standing in that bar now, no one would have known because I had a pair of jeans on, you couldn't see the leg and I could walk around okay-ish and I guess it's, that's a kind of little lesson in life that you don't know what people are going through. You know, that's why he's always trying be nice because you don't know what people are having to deal with and, I was standing there in this pub having a beer, and again the next day I was choosing to have my leg amputated. It was such a strange, strange feeling, but it was ultimately down just to live a better quality of life. You know, I wanted to kind of get on with my life, and I wasn't able to do that if I'd kept the leg. Yeah, big
0: decision, mate, big decision. Um, and Can you tell us a bit, like you say, the quality of life and stuff? Can you tell us a bit about that now? Like what, what you're getting up to now, what you're doing, and what are you sort of. I know you're saying that you can do stuff in moderation but I know you do some mad stuff as well um, what's that stuff that you're doing and, and, and what are you enjoying doing now
1: um, well yeah like I said do, do stuff in moderation but yeah 100% though I still try and have those big goals like the kind of big challenges and I've been lucky enough to climb some of the world's highest mountains I've climbed the highest mountain in, in South America uh, which is just under 7,000 metres high um, I've, but my kind of day to day life now Probably fitter and stronger now than I've ever been in my life before. And I go to it. Um, I go to a boxing gym. I'm in there, kind of five times a week, and I'm on the pads three times a week and doing circuits the other two days. Um, so I'm feeling really fit in that sense. Probably running once or twice a week still. Again, just running like five k's, and um, just keeping myself in shape in that sense. More, I'm out walking the dog always twice a day, and I'm doing the motivational speaking which I'm doing now, which I'm enjoying. So. I'd definitely say within moderation, but again, there is always that bit inside of me, that same bit that I wanted to join the Marines, that always is looking for the next big challenge that I want to do. I think the difference is just not kind of going from one big challenge to another big challenge to another big challenge. For me now, I just love the kind of structure to me day, which has been quite difficult with lockdown of getting up in the morning, taking my little girl to school, going to the gym for a couple of hours. I might have a motivational talk on in the afternoon, I'm walking the dog in the evening and, and having that kind of structure to my day and um, again when I'm sounding really cheesy or anything I, I feel like the happiest man in the world you know and it's only doing simple things I'm not doing anything crazy you know some of the happiest days I've had are, again taking me to the girls to school going to the gym and it's, it's like a cracking gym I go to and all the lads are, the banter's flying it's just you're in there for a couple of hours it's like it's like being back in the Marines it's, it's brilliant a good stress when I go and catch up with me dad have a coffee afterwards. And then in the afternoon I might to go to a school and do a motivational talk. And then in the evening I'm walking the dog and I think I think I've had a brilliant day. You know, I might not have climbed any mountains or nothing, but it's so that's the kind of life I've, I've been lucky enough to forge myself now and I'm, yeah, I'm actually really happy now. Class mate. Is, is any goals that you've
0: got, like any any upcoming goals and, and you've got to tell us your the time that you've done a 10k in and then what's the time that you're doing a 5k in now as well because it's pretty mega in it yeah the uh,
1: 5 the 10k time was 37 minutes 17 seconds is that a world record yeah well unofficial yeah 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 it's <laughs> uh, it a bang on a six minute mile piece it was yeah for 10k <sighs> and me, me 5k pb is a uh, is 1807 1807 it's a 550 minute mile please. minute mile place. Minute mile place. I'm probably, if I, if I went for a 5k now, i will probably do it in up 21 and a half, I reckon.
0: Yeah. So I'm
1: not at that late in just yet. But um, but, but yeah, me, I, it, was, it was great having the running. Um, I've got loads of big challenges that I want to do. I want to one day, um, I'd love to swim across the channel. Yeah.
0: I've got a
1: few things who have done that, I'd like to do that. And a big one for me is I'd love to go across the Atlantic Ocean with the guy Ian who I got blown up with. No. I think you know to get to get blown up together and then roll across the Atlantic together. It'd be it'd be mega. That's cool. Um, but he, he's married and he's a bit under the thumb so It's trying to convince his missus <laughs> that I do like that's, that's the biggest challenge. Um, so yeah, they're the two big ones. I'd like to shoot the channel one day and, and roll across the Atlantic. Um, and, and again, now though, I just I just love being able to just keep fit, you know kind of daily fitness and just feel myself taking over. And the big thing for me as well is that I want my daughter. She's five now. I don't want her to ever have any excuses I want her to look at me and always think well I can't do anything because of this because of that you know, I want her to look at me and you know, see the mountains I've climbed and seeing the things I've done and think well have yeah, done that with one leg you know, what's the, why can't I do that so the big thing for me is to just do all all the normal things all the basics and do them well hopefully that will um,
0: be an inspiration to her as well Sure, she's going to be a tough, uh, successful young woman, mate. With, uh, with um, all your inspirations and and what you're modelling to her. How, how do you, how do you convey the lessons and and sort of these things that you've learned? to the business that you go talk to but also you know the, the children that you go speak to is that something that, that you're always focusing on and, and looking to to sort of convey in a different way
1: yeah I mean again I think it's in, in sport as well there'll be millions of lessons you know yourself could could teach about leadership about teamwork in business and that was one of the things that I, I I didn't have the confidence at first I was going into these businesses at like maybe 24 25 and I thought I've only been a marine you know what do I know about the kind of teamwork of a business but actually quite a lot because a lot of these businesses aren't run very well or they're not they're not living to their potential so a big thing I talk about is not only my personal story and about my resilience and how I've kind of cope with things but I bring back the commando values you know in the Marines we have our commando ethos it's you know courage, determination professional standards fortitude, determination commando humour I kind of link back up link all these things back into the office space about how you know, what what does professional standards mean as a Marine? But what can professional standards mean to you guys in an office space? And, and like one example I always talk about when it comes to professional standards, and it could be any team, you know, it could be a class for a primary school, it could be an elite athletes or in an office. I say like professional standards starts from within. It's about each person, you know, raising their own standards first and foremost and, and doing the right thing all of the time. Not you know, you know, you're not just doing it because you know the manager's watching you or the boss is watching you. You're doing it because you know it's the right thing to do. And the, and the stupid example I always use is if I'm walking my dog and I see a crisp packet on the floor, Now it's not my crisp packet, but I know the right thing to do is pick up the crisp packet and put it in the next bin that you see. And again, once you start doing those little things, it then has a domino effect on those around you. People will see you doing them. They'll start doing the same. And then before long, everyone's standards just, get, just gets raised that little bit more. And before you know it, you become a much more professional outfit, And it's just trying to drop those kind of little Bits of knowledge and what I've learned over the years, of people I've worked with, and in the hope then, you know, the businesses can improve, and that's that's been the great thing about the story that I've, what I've been through is I've been able to give back. I've not just I've not just lived through this. I'm now at a place where I feel like I can give back and say, you know, you don't need to go and get blown up in Afghanistan to learn these life lessons. I've done them, and you know, here's what I learned from them. That's brilliant, mate. And there's, there's something that I'm starting to ask
0: all high performers and, and people that have been there and done it. Um, and without giving too much context around the question, um, but what, what does it mean for you to be on? Like, what does that feel like for you to be on and, like, at the top of your game?
1: What, as in, like, the kind of emotional feeling I get from it, or?
0: Yeah, either. Anything that, that what your mind feels like, what your, what the emotion feels like, whether it's in fitness,
1: whether it's delivering a talk, what does it feel like for you? Just that kind of feeling of um, that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, I think best describe it as of where it's just confidence and, and happiness and joy when you kind of feel like all the hard work has been put in and you're kind of on the brink of something really exciting that's kind of <clears throat> it's what I kind of got from the marines and even when I'm on stage now doing the motivational speaking if again if I put the work and I'm confident in what I've done and it's gone really well and I've kind of got the audience eating out the palm of my hands and I know what's about to come I'm, I'm, I'm visualising the kind of success and what's happening next and I'm on stage and it's all there and just that warm, fuzzy feeling, you get building up and you feel like you're ten feet tall and that to me is is, is kinda of what you work for now and, and that's when I know I know when to check myself if I'm not kinda of getting that feeling off there enough. I know that I've not been applying myself and it's a kinda of good stance to go from and it's um yeah, I I just describe it as a warm, fuzzy feeling in my stomach and the pit of my stomach that it's making you making you feel ten feet tall, and, and you know you're on the brink of something exciting. I like that, mate, and,
0: and especially with with the adversity you've been through, and, and the sort of change of plans, and the the um, yeah, the sort of the the path that you I I imagine you could never have imagined what it was going to be. But to say that and to sort of speak about you being on, you know, whether that's delivering at all, whether that's through fitness, you know, the contrast of how you felt coming out of the Marines, it's pretty big. It's pretty big, and for for people listening, you know, and they might be in that spot that, that you that you talked about. You know, it's 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 out there on the other side as well. It's out there on the other side. And is there any things that you can think of to that allow you, whether it's in the week or the two weeks before and you spoke a bit about like the structure as, as being a Marines, does that play into that feeling of being on? Does that sort of accumulate with any other stuff that, that you can imagine which helps you to get there?
1: Yeah, I think for me personally, I think structure is massive. You know, spoke about it on, a um, spoke about the data podcast about, it sounds so basic and people might kind of say, oh, I don't need to do that or, I'm too big for that. But like making lists is a big one for me. You know, you look at a pilot, when a pilot gets into fly a plane, he might have flown this plane thousands of times, but he still has a checklist of things he has to do. So, you know, if, if a pilot's still doing it despite flying planes for a thousand times, then, you know, you're not too big to do it. So I think... At the start, I kind of feeling on it. The things I've done in prep is, is you know, is, is list making. You know, a big one for that. Um, setting your kind of goals down, surrounding yourself by the right team. You know, the right mindset. You know, not having any negativity around and having problem solvers and problem fixers around you. And one big thing I always tell children is, is you know, you add a product to your surroundings. So if you surround yourself with nine idiots, don't be so surprised when you become the tenth one. Yeah, you've got it there. So if you want to get to that feeling of being on it, you know, you've got that good structure around you, you've got to have those good friends and family and colleagues around you that are going to, going to facilitate you getting to that point of feeling on it. Um, and, and the confidence that you've got of the hard work's been put in, you know, knowing that there's no shortcuts, you've put all the, the hard graft in. I remember just before I broke my world record, um, a week beforehand, we had done one of the last big runs and it was raining, it was windy, it was, it was horrendous conditions. And uh, I ran the fastest, fastest that I'd ever ran to that point, and that confidence I had on the day, feeling that I've, I've already done this. It's it's in the bank. It's done, you know. So having the confidence of knowing that you've put the hard work into a big one. And probably lastly, I'd say the visualization as well. You know, try and visualize how, how good it's gonna feel when you get to this place where you're, you're aiming to go to. Um, I always try and do that. Not never, never try and think too far into the future, but. But still try and visualise, you know, the success and how good it will feel and to maybe get a standard ovation or to break this record or to, you know, to have your friends and family around you celebrating, whatever that may be. I always try and visualise that as well. Yeah, and uh, tell us, mate, about... It
0: links in what you're saying there about the... Uh, surrounding yourself with the right people. Tell us a bit about what you talk about with if you're the smartest person in the room, it's time to change rooms. Can you think back to to your life? Have you ever consciously thought, right, this is it, I've got to move on, I've got to move on to a different thing here?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think that was what was great for the Marines, for me to, you know, I witnessed that first-hand in the Marines. You're just constantly surrounded by guys who were at the top of the game, who were who were either going on to like, you know, it's not elite sport, but it's not far off it, you know, when lads are playing football or rugby to such a standard, and it's, it was great or you go in the gym or you go going on runs with them. So thankfully during my time in the Mains, I was never the smartest in the room. I was always those means But in in my personal life though, um there's definitely there's definitely been times in my life when I've had kind of friendship groups and you kinda, you know, you may be out drinking and stuff with them. And not that I think that I'm better than them, but you can you can just see yourself going nowhere fast, surrounded by these people. And I've thought I don't really want to be doing this for the next 20, 30 years of my life. I need to maybe switch up my friendship circles. I need to surround myself by people who are maybe doing, a, doing a bit more with the life. And, um, so there's definitely kind of been, been people along the way who have kind of not, not ditched if you like, but definitely kind of maybe, you know, came away from them a little bit. I, I surrounded myself with more people in my life who, who I kind of think, wow, you know what? It's, it's pretty cool. What they're doing, I, I quite enjoy that. And it's, and just different and I think that's I think that's one big problem is some people will will kind of keep the same circles and I'm not saying kind of ditch all your friends you know, I don't mean that but I mean it's some people do fall into that comfort zone of, of of surrounding yourself by just the wrong people just because it's oh they're always like that or they always moan that's just what they like and it's I kind of got to a point when I thought I don't just want to be around them if they're moaning all the time I want to be around people who are who, who are really trying to make themselves better people and So I think um, I've definitely done that in in a personal sense, yeah. With the the motivational speaking, I've done it by, it's only been through myself just because of my line of work. I'm constantly looking at other public speakers and seeing, you know, how can I improve? What are they doing? You know, am am I better than them? What can I kind of learn from their kind of demeanour and how they portray themselves on stage? And so I'm always, as a work sense, I'm always trying to do that. Like I say, on a personal level, um, I've always done it over the years as well.
0: Awesome, top man. Uh, thanks for that, Paul. And, and just before we go, Paul, where can people find you? Where can people look to book you? Where can people look to follow you on on Instagram and and Twitter?
1: Yeah, it's just uh, Andy G Bootneck on Twitter and Instagram, and it's um, yeah, I do motivational speaking. So if it's it's schools or sports teams or businesses, I can uh, I can come in and, and and yeah, do do a talk and things like that for you all. And I've got my book, my book's called You'll Never Walk uh, Out Too. Um, yeah but thanks mate for having me I'm looking forward to getting you on mine as well mate I'm, I'm fascinated in elite sport and what's to ask people on mate so I've already got me questions live up for you as well next time
0: yeah <laughs> I'm nervous pal I'm nervous but awesome mate it's been been classed to have you
1: on thanks for having me mate appreciate it
0: thanks for listening guys really really appreciate it. taking the time to support mentality please give us a rating please let us know what you thought really appreciate the ratings really appreciate the feedback And have a look at what we're doing at Mentality Apparel. Have a look at some of the stuff that we've got over at mentalitymagazine.com. So much reading material and so much advice from people that we've gained over the years. And let us know what you want to see from us. Let us know who you think we should get on the podcast next. We've got a bit of time in this time as we speak and now with, with the lockdown. But let us know who we want to see on the podcast. Let us know who you think would represent the Mentality ethos and who we could connect with really appreciate that guys and really appreciate the support too if you want to help us in another way and join the club which is a pool of of men who are like-minded who think the same we want to talk about mental health we want to talk about getting better we want to talk about the less spoken about topics then go to patreon.com forward slash mentality that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash mentality and have a look at how you can join the journey, cheers guys.